Have you ever wondered, how do we really know that the Bible is the inspired Word of God? That's a great question that many Christians struggle with. In fact, evidence that God wrote the Bible? Whenever I hear that, I have a simple question for them, and you can ask the same question. What would you accept as evidence that God wrote the Bible? What would that look like in your mind? If you saw A, B, or C, that would definitely be evidence. Well, I don't know, but I know there's no evidence. Wait a minute, if by your own admission, you don't even know what the evidence would look like, how do you know it doesn't exist? In fact, if you don't have criteria that you use to judge what counts and what doesn't, you can't really even have this discussion. Well, there is so much evidence for the inspiration of the Bible, including evidence from internal consistency, historical accuracy, scientific accuracy, and prophetic accuracy. Lots of evidence from each of those areas. Let's just take a look at prophecy. Prophecy is arguably the strongest evidence for inspiration of the Bible, and it makes the Bible very unique. You won't find any other book that comes close to the prophetic content of the Bible. In fact, 27% of the Bible is prophetic in nature. That's over 8,000 passages, making over 1,800 predictions, covering over 700 topics. It is phenomenal. And every single one of those prophecies has come true in every minute detail. Some are for our future yet, but all the other ones have come true in every minute detail. Let's just take a look at one. Prophecy of the city of Tyre. It's in Ezekiel 26. Tyre is north of Israel, right on the Mediterranean coast. The Bible prophesied specifically that King Nebuchadnezzar would come from the north to attack the city. Guess what happened? King Nebuchadnezzar came from the north to attack the city. Secondly, it said many other nations would come and attack the city. Guess what happened? Many other nations came to attack the city. It was also prophesied that all the rubble from the city would be thrown into the sea. That doesn't make any sense. Yeah, go kill the people, destroy their buildings, set it on fire, but why would you take all the time and effort to throw it all in the sea? Well, guess what? Alexander the Great came in to attack the people, but many had fled to a nearby island. He couldn't build big enough ships to get at the people, so he took all the rubble from the city, threw it in the sea, and built a bridge to get over to the people. That's exactly what happened. And then also the Bible prophesied the city would never be rebuilt. It's in a perfect location, but it's never been rebuilt, just like the Bible says. There is a portion over there that they're calling Tyre. It's in a different location. They're just using the same name. It's not the same city. The Bible was accurate in its prophecy of the city of Tyre. Then we have messianic prophecies, the prophecies about Jesus. Jesus fulfilled at least 300 prophecies during his lifetime and in his death and resurrection. Why so many? Well, if it was just prophesied that Jesus would be a man, imagine how many people could claim to be the Messiah. But by fulfilling so many, he ultimately proved that he was truly the Messiah, and many of those were totally outside of his control. And so it's phenomenal the amount of prophecies we have for Jesus, and it does two things. It actually proves that the writers who wrote the prophecies were inspired by God, otherwise he would have gotten a lot of them wrong. Secondly, it proves that Jesus truly was the Messiah because he fulfilled every single one of those things. Prophecy is one of the strongest evidences for the inspiration of the Bible. And we are just beginning to scratch the surface talking about the wonders of God.
The word wonder is a word that we often see associated uh, with this time of year. A lot of times it, it, it's found in, in commercials or ads where, you know, maybe they'll capture the, 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 the twinkle of the white lights in the eyes of a child and say the wonder of Christmas. Or we see it used in songs, uh, the Winter Wonderland, or uh, that really terribly conceived song written by Paul McCartney in his attempt at a, at a Christmas carol, Wonderful Christmas Time. Have you guys been subjected to that at all this year yet? This idea of wonder, the wonder of Christmas, is something we see all around us. And, and most of the time it's associated with the secular vision of Christmas, whether it's, whether it's an ad for a, for a car or, or for diamonds or whether it's a song that's written to kind of conjure up this time of year. But the reality is the concept of the wonder of Christmas is something that predates a secular view of Christmas by generations. The wonder of Christmas. I think a lot of us, we, we think about Christmas and we understand its association with the birth of Jesus Christ. Even if you're not much of a Christian, there, there, you have this understanding that, that Christmas is related to this idea that Jesus Christ was born and, and it, most people have this idea of the manger scene and all that sort of thing. But even for those of us who are deeply aware that Christmas is rooted in the concept of the birth of Jesus Christ, I think a lot of us, we, we lose sight of the depth of the wonder of the event. It is a narrative, it is a story that isn't just resting in, in that, 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 that one day, that, that one event, that manger scene that takes place with Mary and Joseph and the shepherds. What is wondrous about the story goes way beyond that. It, it is generational. Jay mentioned it in the, in the video, the idea that there are all these, prophetic, there's all these prophetic utterances, these prophetic ideas about the messianic emergence of Jesus Christ. Let me give you an example of one that I think a lot of us don't know, and I think it's one that for me, as I've heard about, as I've heard about it, was really blown away about the hand of God at work through the generations. Do you know that 400, and, you know the story of the, the, um, the, the three kings, the coming of the wise men, the magi? We've all heard that story, right? It's the story of these these three men who, who travel over miles and miles and miles and miles to go and see a king that they know is coming. They, they're, they're traveling with the anticipation that there is this great king of Israel that is to be born and they want to come and they want to bring their gifts so that they can honor this king and they do it by following a star. Now for a lot of us, we hear that story and we don't really, we don't really get a grasp for for how that came to be. It's, just, it's, a, it's a part of the legend. It's just part of, of our Christmases. But have you ever really thought about that? How is it that three wise guys, three wise men, three kings, decide that they're going to travel thousands of miles to go visit the king who is going to be born from another nation? Have you ever thought about how that story emerged, how that story took place? The reality is, the narrative of that little part of our Christmas story actually, actually is predated by hundreds of years. See, um, 
the Magi weren't the only one who were looking for this king. They weren't, they weren't the only ones looking for a Messiah. Around the time that Jesus Christ was born, there was this explosion of Messiahs. This explosion of people coming forward and saying, I'm the one that was promised. I'm the one who's going to save Israel. They were looking for the kings. And the reason they were looking for the kings is because it was prophesied about 490 years before. Daniel, in Daniel chapter 9, begins to tell the story of the emergence of a king who is going to come in 490 years. 490 years after is where we see the birth of Jesus Christ. Now, it makes some sense that in the time of Christ, in the land of Christ, in the, in the nation of Israel, that all these people who knew of, Dave, of Daniel, who had read of Daniel's writings, who had studied Daniel, would be anticipating this king, this, this king of Israel. But one of the things that, is, that, that, is, that to me, when I think about it, that we don't always, often think about is, why is it that these guys thousands of miles away who weren't Jewish, who, who weren't, who weren't um, subject to the nation of Israel, were aware of and were anticipating the birth of this king? Well, Daniel wrote his prophecy in exile. Daniel, as a young man, was taken away from Israel, and he was taken off thousands of miles to a place called Babylon, which just so happens to be the place where most people believe the three wise men came from. And so Daniel wrote his prophecy while he was in Babylon. And I want to read to you something out of Daniel chapter 2 to tell you something, uh, something else about Daniel and why it relates to the, to the Magi. In Daniel chapter 2 it says, Then King Nebuchadnezzar made Daniel a great man and gave him many gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and the chief of the governors over the wise men or Magi of Babylon. So 490 years before the birth of Christ, Daniel was put over the Magi of the East. He prophesied about the coming of the Messiah and he began to teach it to those that he had been placed over, these Babylonian mystics. And after century upon century upon century, passing down the prophecies of Daniel, they landed amongst these three magi and they went to seek after this king. And there's also an interesting part of that too where it says, they, they, they traveled by a star. They, they looked into the heavens as they were astronomers and they looked in the heavens and they saw this special star that arose and they identified it with the birth of this new king. You know, a lot of people believe that, that um, the star that they were seeking was actually the confluence of, of Jupiter and Saturn. And if you look back, uh, you look back in, the, uh, in the star calendars, it, it arrives right around the time that Jesus Christ is born. So Jesus, so, so Jesus Christ's birth was, was heralded 490 years before he was born in a land in Babylon. And the story of him is, is passed down for generations upon generations. And God hangs in the stars a Christmas star to lead these men to Jesus Christ to give us the story that we have today. That's wondrous, isn't it? To see the hand of God, the sovereignty of God at play over hundreds of years to say, here comes the Messiah. As Jay said, it, it wasn't just this prophecy that we see fulfilled in the birth of Christ. 
But there are 300 different prophecies about the messianic nature of Jesus Christ that we see all throughout. Isaiah is a prophet who we hear, who we hear um, quoted quite often during this time of year. And, and particularly, what he writes in Isaiah chapter 7, Isaiah chapter 9, I want to look at these because I think these give us an incredible picture into the nature of who Christ is and how the wonder of Christmas really touches us in this day and age. He writes in chapter 7, Hear then, O, o house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. For unto us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulders and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness. It's these prophetic words written by Isaiah hundreds of years before the birth of Christ that I want to explore because in them we find not just a wondrous truth about the narrative of Christmas, but we find the wondrous truth about God's sovereign work in our lives even today. Would you bow your heads and join me as I ask God's blessing on his word this morning. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the beauty of your word. That as we look into it, we realize that on so many different levels it speaks to us, it speaks to our now and who we are. Father, I pray that you would open up our hearts, you would open up our minds so that we may see how the wonder of Christmas is with us every day of our lives. In your precious and holy name we pray. Amen. Now I read for you the, the prophecy of Isaiah, but I want you to see the fulfillment um, of this prophecy in the Christmas account as it's recorded in Matthew. Matthew chapter 1, it says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son and shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. This is a fairly condensed uh, rendition of the story and the birth of Jesus Christ. But in it reveals to us some really incredible truths about the identity of who Jesus Christ is and the nature of who Jesus Christ is. 
As I read the, the prophet Isaiah, you kind of lay what he says alongside what Matthew says. And what you see very clearly about Matthew's intention is he's saying, I want you to understand that Jesus, this one who was born in that manger, whose father is Joseph, is the fulfillment of the prophecy of Isaiah to be the Messiah, to be the Savior of the world. I say that because you see it very clearly that they lay alongside each other. He starts in it by, by making the declaration, uh, declaration about Jesus' heritage. He, says, uh, he talks about Joseph here, and he says of Joseph that he was the son of David, of the son of David, of the line, of the lineage of David. In fact, if you read, read further up in chapter 1, Matthew actually lays out the, the, entire, the entire heritage of Jesus Christ, the, the entire lineage of Jesus Christ. He walks all the way through it, and he walks all the way down from David to Jesus. Now, why does he do that? Because he's fulfilling and he's, he's showing the fulfillment of the prophecy of Isaiah that everyone has been waiting for. He says, the Messiah is going to be from the line of David. Matthew wanted it to be very clear to everyone that Jesus Christ fulfilled that nature. In his identity, he was the son of David, and he then had the authority to establish the throne of David again. The second thing we see about the identity of Matthew, the identity of Christ that Matthew is trying to reveal as a mirror of the prophecy of Isaiah is not just about his identity, but it's also about his nature. Jesus fulfills the prophecy from Isaiah because he's of the line of David. And he fulfills the prophecy of Isaiah because he is born of a virgin. Remember Isaiah's words in chapter 7 where he says, And a virgin will conceive and bear a son. Matthew reiterates this idea. Matthew makes it very, very clear that Jesus Christ was born of a virgin. Matthew doesn't back away from that declaration. He, he's, he's, trying, he's trying to make it very, very clear that Jesus Christ, as Isaiah said, as we've been waiting for, as we've been anticipating, Jesus Christ is this man, not just because he's of the line of David, but even the miraculous, even the divine. He was born of a virgin. It's important for us to, to, to understand that that Matthew wasn't soft-soaping this idea. Matthew wasn't making this an idea that was, well, kind of, maybe, could have been. I say that because, because in, in, in much of the, of the modern interpretations um, amongst Christians about this idea, some have kind of backed away from that idea. One of the ways in which they do that is they say, well... You know, the word virgin that's translated here to virgin in, in Hebrew and Greek can actually mean like just a young lady, a young woman, that he was born of a young woman, which is an interesting thing to prophesy about, right? Because it's kind of standard. <laughs> but even that declaration, even that contention that... Um, that there, that it could be interpreted to be just a young woman it really doesn't hold water when you look at, at the word. First, the Hebrew word in Isaiah, Alma, um, can mean a, a young girl, but what really it emphasizes, it, it emphasizes marriageability. A young girl who is able to be married, who is, who is eligible for marriage. And the implication in that 
is she as a virgin in that context and in that, in, that, in that day. So that was really meant to carry that idea when it's declared. And nowhere else, there's nowhere in the Old Testament where the word Alma is used that it's not meant to indicate exactly what we think of when we think of the idea of a girl being a virgin. So, so in the Hebrew, the, the, the intention would be that. The intention would be to, to, to bring that across. But secondly, the idea of Mary as a virgin is described in the Gospels. You can see it here in verse 18. Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. So what's Matthew actually saying? He's saying, he said they, didn't, they weren't together. They hadn't come together. Well, that, that's a very clear indication that they had not consummated their relation, not consummated their marriage. And then he emphasizes, he says, because he was conceived of what? Holy Spirit. In fact, in, in Luke chapter 1, when they describe the story of the birth of Jesus Christ, um, they quote Mary as, as saying, when the angels come to her and say that you're going to bear a child, she says, how can that be as I have not been with a man? So she's making her own declaration about the fact that she hasn't been with anyone. I say all this is because, I say this to say that there is, and I say it because it's important to say it, because the implication of this. It's not simply because Matthew is working to identify who this man is. But it goes beyond the identification of Jesus as Messiah to the nature of Jesus as Messiah. Because it starts us down the path of understanding not just who he is, but what he came to be and what he came to do. Do you guys realize that the implication that Jesus Christ was born of a virgin leads us to understand the divine nature of Jesus? You know how I know that? Because I don't think anyone has ever been born of a virgin besides this man. So the implication here is that he will be and that he is divine in nature. And that's important because of the third declaration Matthew makes as a reflection of the prophecy of Isaiah. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. God with us. With the birth of Jesus, God dwelt among us. God with us. This is the most profound fulfillment of the prophecy of Isaiah that God put on the flesh of man and dwells with us. This is the most wondrous declaration. This is the most wondrous truth about the entirety of the Christmas story. God with us. The first part of that declaration is God with us. The divine conception of this man reveals his divine nature. And his name declares it, Emmanuel, God with us. This is without doubt, as I say, the most wondrous part about the story of Christmas. That God chose to come and dwell amongst men. This is a, a unique aspect of the Christian faith. 
You see, every other religion in time has always been about man striving to God. Striving to be good enough for God. Striving to understand God. Striving to know God. Striving to be near God. Even striving to be God. But the coming of Jesus Christ established a faith, established a religion, established an idea, a truth that revealed God coming to us. It, It revealed his desire to be near us, to know us, to have relationship and to commune with us. When you think about that, it is, it is massive in its scale, right? God came to be with us. It tells us so much about his nature. It tells us so much about our place in him. God came to be with us. What we're talking about here is the concept or the idea, the incarnation of God. Now, for many of us who have grown up in the church, or many of us who have any real understanding of the Christian faith, we understand the concept of the incarnation, the coming of God, the God putting on the flesh of man, the incarnation of God. And I think it's a beautiful truth, and it's a beautiful idea, but part of the problem is we think about it, we understand it, we, we, we believe it in the idea of a theology. It's a theological concept. When the truth of the matter is, the real beauty, the real thrust, the real wonder of this truth is the, 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 the living out of it, is the implementation of it in our very existence and our very being. God came to dwell amongst us and the implication of it carries us or should carry us every day of our lives. It should be a force of reality in our lives. And I want you to understand why that is. I want you to understand how that comes to be. The author of Hebrews writes in Hebrews chapter 4, and he says this about the incarnation of God. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every way, every respect has been tempted as, as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. What does the author of Hebrews tell us? What does he tell us about the nature of the incarnation of God? He speaks in this place and he says, he says do, you, do you ever struggle in your life? Do you ever stumble in your life? Do you ever doubt in your life? Do you ever fear in your life? Do you ever feel rejected in your life? He says, you know who else has? The truth of the incarnation of Christ is deeply important to the life we live. He says, listen, you live this life. And so did he. He says, look, in the form of Jesus, God walked the earth. And as a result of that, he stands as a force of inspiration, but also a fount of grace for all of us. 
The reality that, that God put on the flesh of man and lived this life and walked through what we walked through establishes forever the truth that, that he, is, he, he is a force of inspiration for the life we live, but also a fount of grace. Now what I mean when I say a, a, a force of inspiration is essentially what we talk about when we talk about living the gospel of Jesus Christ. When we talk about living Jesus, when we talk about living out God, we talk about this idea that the life and the teaching, the work, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ stands as the example, stands as the standard which we all follow after. Right? We understand this in our Christian identity, our Christian faith, right? Jesus Christ forgave those who mistreated him. We should forgive those who mistreat us. Jesus Christ lived, loved unconditionally. We should love unconditionally. Jesus Christ lived a holy life. We should live a holy life also. Consistently and constantly, all throughout the scripture, we are taught every single day that the standard of a Christian's life is to look to Jesus Christ. Right? We talked about in our last series, we talked about, about 2 Peter, and it says in there in 2 Peter that, 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 that we have been given everything we need for life and godliness in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. That's the idea behind it, that look to Christ, look to the life he lived, look to him as the inspiration for the life we're to have. Live in holiness, live in forgiveness. Jesus Christ knows what it's like to be rejected. How did he respond to rejection? You respond to rejection that way, right? This is the standard of living a Christian life. He is the force of inspiration for Christian living. And many of us get that. Many of us understand that. Many of us see that as, as kind of Christianity 101. And so we do strive for that. And we do try to live in that reality. But how many of you discovered you're not Jesus? How many of you discovered that, that you quite often fall short of the inspiration that Christ is. And the reality is for many of us, and we see this as a consistent, I think, in those people who struggle in their faith and even those people who walk away from their faith, their failure to live up to, their failure to, 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 to be Jesus ends up becoming a crushing idea. Many people go, I don't want to be a Christian because it's just do this, do that, do this, do that, and I don't want to have to do that, I can't live up to that. And so they walk away. For a lot of people who are still staying in their faith, they struggle in this because they see their failure, they see their shame, they see their guilt, and they live every single life knowing that Jesus Christ is truth but never being able to attain what they believe they need to live up to. And so what they do is they respond to their sin much in the same way our, our forefathers did. You see, in the same way in which Adam and Eve were aware of their sin, they hide their faith and they hid their face from God, we do the same thing. We live our lives separated from a communion with God, a relationship with God, and in that darkness, our sin festers and grows. But you see, the declaration in Hebrews chapter 4 about the incarnation of Jesus Christ leads us to exactly the opposite of that idea, exactly the opposite of that response. 
Because when I press in to, to Hebrews chapter 4, it tells me how I should respond when I have need, when I do fail, when I don't measure up. Because it says, let us then, with confidence. Now, now let's stop there real quick. Let us then. When he says, let us then, what is he saying about the then? He's saying, since we have a high priest who has been in all ways tempted like us, but hasn't sinned, let us then draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. What is the wondrous truth about the incarnation of Christ at Christmas time? It is that he set the example for us to live, but he provided for us a place of grace and mercy when we fail. I love the description of the throne of God. The throne of what? Grace. Not the throne of judgment, the throne of grace. Not the throne of punishment, the throne of grace. Not the throne of, of anger or vengeance, but the throne of grace. The incarnation of Christ at Christmas created the great wonder that we can enter into the presence of God and find comfort and find forgiveness and find restoration. We have the opportunity to enter into his presence. The worst thing we can do is turn our back on him and walk away. Now one of the truths we have to embrace when we talk about this idea is you do have to come to receive grace. So many people want to just continue to live the life that they live and believe that they should be able to do whatever they want, wherever they want, whenever they want, however they want, and still receive the grace of God. I, I, I heard this kind of conversation take place actually yesterday when I was listening to um, public radio, and there were two people on who, who had grown up in the church, and they, they walked away from the church, and they basically had this whole conversation about how they don't really understand um, the concept of God as love um, because he's jealous and he expects things from me, and i got to live this way and live that way. And it was fascinating to me because I just thought, man, you, they didn't teach you very well in your church when you were growing up. You see, the reality is this, is God invites us into a love relationship with him. He invites us into a covenant relationship with him where, where he opened the door. He loved us before we loved him. He, he, he provided for us while we were yet sinners. And he says, come and be with me. The, the, the Bible throughout the Old Testament and New Testament uses this very beautiful illustration of the relationship between God's people and God as bride and bridegroom. And Christ as bridegroom invites us as his bride into a loving relationship with him. But in that relationship is, is, is a, 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 a deal, is a covenant, is responsibility. Basically, God says, I love you. Do you love me? Do you love me more than everything else? Do you, do, 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 you, do you pursue me more than everything else? Do you want to be with me more than anything else? Many of us want to live a relationship with the Father that is like an unfaithful bride. 
I want to go and do whatever we want, wherever we want, whenever we want, and you just have to take me back every single time and receive me every single time. We want to be a bride who doesn't show love towards her husband, but expects love in return. God loved us. Loved us so much that he sent his son to live and to suffer the life of man. To be perfect in his living. And then to take upon himself, on the cross, our sin. Because he loved us. And he opened the door to his throne room where we might find grace and love and mercy in our time of need. The wondrous truth of Christmas, in my mind, is not in the the joy that seems to grip people's hearts this time of year, in the beauty of the fallen snow, even really in the majesty and in the mind-blowing nature of the prophecies, of the stories of the, uh, of the three wise men or the star hung in the sky. The greatest wonder of this season is that God came to be amongst men so that we might have mercy and grace in our time of need. If you're here this morning, wherever you find yourself at, whatever state you find yourself in as it relates to who God is in your life, to who Christ is in your life, I want you to understand that Christmas has opened the gate of the throne room of God where his throne of grace awaits you. If you're here and you've never, never given your heart to Jesus Christ and you're kind of been wandering around and you've been living in your own sin and you've been seeing that the sin in your life, living for myself, living for my own wants, living for my own desires, has not been satisfying you. It, 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 every time you find yourself in, a, in, in, in an empty relationship, in a broken place, in a broken situation, I want you to understand, the throne room of grace is open to you and he invites you in to experience him and to receive him. And as you do, he will give you life, he will give you peace, he will give you grace. Maybe you're here this morning and and you are a follower of Christ and, and you consider yourself someone who loves Jesus and follows Jesus, but you find yourself failing on a regular basis. And as a result of that, you found yourself withdrawing from him and you feel your faith dying just a little bit every day. coming of Jesus Christ opened the door to the throne of grace. He didn't come so that you'd have shame. He didn't come that you'd live in guilt. He came so those would be wiped away and you can step into his presence. But it requires you stepping into his presence. It requires you repenting and laying it aside and saying, Jesus, I love you more than this thing. Come, Holy Spirit, Come work in me. And that's the beauty of Emmanuel. God with us wasn't just what took place when Jesus came. But he said, when I leave, I will send you another. Which means God's Holy Spirit is with us now. 
I want to encourage you this morning to step into his presence. He's here to speak to you. He's here to guide you. He's here to lead you. He's here to forgive you. He's here to encourage you. He's here to comfort you. He's here to give you grace and peace. Because Emmanuel, God with us.